Almighty Father in heaven, holy is your name. O you whose name is the Lord, who alone are the most high over all the earth, you and you alone are good. You have assured us that while the sacrifice and works of the wicked are an abomination before your eyes, the prayers of your saints are acceptable in your presence. Hallelujah. For your eyes are on the righteous and your ears are open to their prayers. Blessed be your name. We confess our fear often grips us when we see how the hostile world rages around us against your truth. We confess our hearts are too often enticed by the trinkets and charms that this life affords. We confess our consciences are either ignored or often holding us bondage. Oh, how we need Jesus Christ, our Savior this morning. Cause your word and your spirit to deal with us according to your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For these, in these, we find your goodness. Deliver us, we pray, O Lord. We pray for your namesake, that you might do this in the name of Jesus Christ, that our souls might turn to you in praise and adoration, for you indeed are very good. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Christian and faithful are two pilgrims. They have journeyed together now for a little bit, and they enjoy sharing communication with one another, encouraging each other in the faith. And along this journey of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, we see Christian and faithful often being introduced to different ones. None that are so thrilling to them than the character evangelists. They both love evangelists. Evangelist shows up many times in Christian's life on his own when he's traveling. But now for the first time, evangelist is is coming upon Christian and faithful as they're journeying together. They're going toward the celestial city. And they're coming out of what is known as the wilderness. And as they exit this wilderness, their eyes are set upon an extravagant and festive-looking city. It could indeed turn their hearts to assume that there could be rest and, and an opportunity for comfort and maybe some opportunity for some respite. But instead, Evangelist now comes along their way and he walks with them from the wilderness, exiting out of the wilderness, um, before they enter this place, this city called Vanity Fair. And Evangelist warns them, He asks them first how they're doing and some of the things they've gone through and how they've responded. He encourages them in their faith. And then he explains to both Christian and faithful that though this city may have a lot of things that may allure them, they need to be careful. One of them will not make it out of that city. Stay faithful. Be true to Christ. And know that these allurements are not just trinkets and fun things. Though they try to make them look very trite and empty in way of any kind of significance, they they are dangerous. This morning, as we come to 
our letter in 1 Peter, we notice Peter here is acting much like the evangelist. He's saying to the Christians that they're to live their lives in this world. They're to be faithful and to do good. Remember even last week we noticed in many places, even in this section in chapter 3 and in chapter 2, where Peter is encouraging the, the saints there in, in the day of 1 Peter, these, these saints that have been scattered and are exiled, he's encouraging them to remain faithful, but he also reminds them that there will be reviling, there will be suffering, there will be sorrow, there will be difficulty. And he's explaining to them that they need to be careful. These are eternal dangers. These are not temporary dangers. And they need to be concerned because we too, just as the uh, Christian and faithful during the time of John Bunyan in the celestial city, the journey to the celestial city, just like the time of Peter when he was encouraging the saints during his day to be careful of the world's dangers, Peter here is calling us this morning to also be careful. For as we walk through this hostile world, we too are in a vanity fair. The things of this world lure us away. The things that, are, that the world wants and that the desires of those who are not those who hope in Christ, all of those things, we think, we think we can have those, enjoy those, pursue those things, just like the unbelievers do, just like those who don't hope in Christ. We can have those things and these things. Peter says, beware. They're playing for keeps. They want your soul. They don't just want your money or your eye. They want your soul. And so Peter here is warning the Christians during the time of 1 Peter. He's saying to them that they're to be careful as exiles. They're to live with this hope. This hope that's not in this world or of this world, but this hope that is, that is for another world in a hostile world that they live in. He urges them, if you notice in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you see how he, here he begins in verse 11 with the word beloved? This is in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved. Now, this section ends then with, appropriately, with the word amen. Notice with me in chapter 4, verse 11. This section begins with beloved in chapter 2, verse 11, and then ends at the end of chapter 4, verse 11 with amen. Notice the next word right after chapter 4, verse 11. It says amen, chapter 4, verse 12, beloved. There's another section. There's the second section in 1 Peter. And notice it goes all the way over to the end of chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11, look what it ends with there. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so these are two sections in the book of 1 Peter. We see those laid out as Peter's laying these out. And what I want you to notice is that we are in this, this first section, beginning with beloved there in verse 11 of chapter 2. And he gives us the heading. And he tells us we're to, according to this, abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that you may speak against, uh, that, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. So we see here that this living hope is to be is urged here by Peter to be lived out in a warlike atmosphere and to be a witness to those that are around you that do not know Christ, do not hope in him. And then we find in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 12, that is speaking here of these different callings that we're called to, the different things that we're called to, whether it be a, a political authorities or 
uh, vocational authorities, authorities within the home, husbands and wives. We're called then in all of these places to live out this living hope where this living hope then is shown and demonstrated through the callings that the Lord has given to us. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to chapter 3, verse 13, where this living hope then is proved. It is proved. It is established. And this morning, we'll consider how our response to the suffering that is told that will be given here, the harm, the sorrow, the struggle, the hardship, that this response to these things will prove or affirm that we do, in fact, have a sure and a living hope. Where? In Christ. Now, make no mistake, every individual in the hearing of my voice this morning has a hope in something. You're, you're hoping, you're desiring, you're, you're anchoring your heart, your life, and everything about you in something. The question this morning is that if you are in Christ, then you're to be anchoring that hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has promised to us on this day of visitation that you just heard me read about. In the heaven to come, in the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not go away. Unlike all of the trinkets and things we so often try to live for in this life. And so this morning, as we look at verses 13 through 17, I want to ask this question. How are we to respond to the hardship and the sufferings as we seek to live faithful lives, righteous lives, before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we to respond in this this hostile world? Peter answers this question by giving us three different charges, three different things that we're to do in response to these hardships and sufferings. This is how we're to respond when the world pushes against us, when we're seeking to be faithful and to do good as God has called us to. Three different ways that we're to respond. These are the three points this morning. Point number one, don't fear. Don't fear. That's point number one. And we're not to fear those who seek to harm us. We're not to fear those who seek to harm us. Don't fear, point number one. Point number two, then, honor Christ. Honor Christ. Point number two, we're to honor Christ specifically with those who ask of us. With those who ask of us. This is uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Point number one was verses 13 and 14. Point number two is verse 15. So point number one, don't fear. Verses 13 through 14. Point number two, honor Christ. This is verse 15. And then finally, point number three. Point number three, live truly. Live truly. This is verses 16 through 17. Now, I began, I, I began my outline, I thought, live sincerely is kind of what I'm after. But sincerely is hard for the kids to write. And I encourage the kids to get the outline. And so for all of you kids who are trying to write the outline, live truly, we'll, we'll do it. That, that, that'll, make, that'll make the case. And uh, ask your parent to, sp- to spell sincerely for you <laughs> later, and they can do that for you. All right? So live truly. Live truly. Don't fear. Honor Christ. Live truly. Let's look together at verses 13 through 14 then. Don't fear those who seek to harm us. Verse 13 states, follow with me. Now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Who will harm you 
Even as I read these verses, I want you to notice that it begins with the word now, right? It can be actually translated other ways, but here basically saying, the, the basic essence of this is he's saying, now, now that I've just said what I just said, in other words, therefore, I'm bringing forward the previous verses. Just look with me just the verse up in verse 12 there. Um, Psalm 34 is being quoted, and he says this in chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But, here's the contrast, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, the Lord's against those who do evil. The Lord is for those who are for him. And so the harm that is being spoken of in our text in verse 13 then is to be understood in light of the Lord's eyes and ears being upon those in favor of those who are his people and against those who do evil. That is, those who seek to harm his saints. What's being said here is that the Lord is going to affirm those who are his. He's going to work against and opposite those who are contrary to him. This is very comforting to God's people. This stirs in them an understanding that they should not then fear. If they are not the ones only or alone battling, which so often we feel like we are in this world, but instead the Lord himself is working and ordering these things. But I don't see it. It doesn't feel that way. There's, there seems to be unleashed opposition to me and what I'm trying to do or what my family's trying to do in this world as we're trying to be faithful. It seems like the entire world is like a tsunami coming over all of us. No, the Lord is at work and he is more powerful than these big media industries. He's more powerful than all of the things and forces of the world. He's more power than any of the governments that are around us. We're called, then, in our passage, notice, to not only live as Christians. It doesn't just say, live your life as Christians. No, here it says, live out your hope in Christ in a certain way, with zeal. Do you see it there? Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We're to be zealously pursuing good in our lives. This good as we've seen. Again, read back through 1 Peter and mark all the times that it speaks of good behavior or good actions. He's basically saying living out this, this life uh, before the Lord, before his eyes, fearing him, obeying the Lord. This is what's being spoken of as the good that we're to be living. We're to be doing this zealously. And when there's pushback or hardship or harm, when we seek to be faithful, those around us, it could be even our, our, our family, our extended family, our neighbors, our larger culture. When that pushback happens, we're often less eager, aren't we? We're less eager when pushback happens to be zealous. But instead, when, when that pushback happens to us, we often are less eager to be uh, uh, zealous and fervor with fervor. But instead, we, we tend to pull back with timidity and caution. Peter here is encouraging them. Though the hardship may come, may har the harm may come, don't pull back. Continue with zeal to live out your faith. Hoping in Christ. Some have understood this rhetorical question, and that's what it is here. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Some have understood this rhetorical question to basically be implying this, and that is that um, in our world, if you do good, then you are less likely, though could possibly, receive harm. Now, th th that could be what it's implying here, but... That would be so awkward and unusual for Peter. There's nothing about that that really fits into any of the context, especially considering the very point and aim of 1 Peter as a whole um, says this, that our life before the Lord is to be lived with eternal hope, not with earthly hope. We're to be living with our eyes fixed on the Lord. This hope 
is not of this world or in this world, but instead this living hope is to keep our eyes fixed on a day that would come. So with the living eternal hope in mind that Peter keeps bringing us back to and telling us we are to live out of, we can read this rhetorical question then with the correct aim. And the correct aim is this. This question is actually encouraging us to consider and to reflect carefully on this, that when we live our lives zealously devoted to good things, harm will come and we should expect that. That shouldn't surprise us. That shouldn't be something that, that knocks us off our kill. It's not something that when, when we do good, we expect people to do good back to us. That's not necessarily so. He's asking this question so that we can think and ponder and reflect that when, we do zealous, when, we're, when we're zealous for good works, that harm, harm indeed, can very well come right out of that, right out of that desire to do good, right out of that very action of seeking to be zealous for good. There could be harm that comes. Now, my question for you is this. As you live your life, do you often have pushback for your faith? Do you often live your life seeking to be faithful and then you have pushback? I want to encourage you this morning to reflect and consider the fact that if you are living your life pretty casually, you can hang out with either those who have a hope in Christ or those who don't. You can intermingle with all of these and and nobody seems to bother you and everything seems to be good and there is no pushback or hardship or difficulty then I want to ask you, do you really have your hope in Christ? Is it really placed where it needs to be? Or have you become so much like a chameleon, like one who can, can, can blend into any area? I, 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 can, I can be thrilled by all the things that somebody who's an unbeliever is thrilled about. I can enjoy those and, and, have, and, 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 and pursue those and encourage that person in those things. And then I can come with my people who have hope in Christ that speak of eternal rewards and say, yes, I believe in those too. This is not how Peter explains things. He says that those of us who have our hope fixed in the things to come are going to be those who are opposed or those who are of this world, who live for the things of this world. They are not going to like it when you say that their idols, their things that they live for, those things that they're passionate for, when you say those things are empty, they have no real value, they will go away, they're not worth living for. There will be harm that will come to you when you speak against their idols. But we have noticed here how doing good, according to 1 Peter, is what we're called to. It's not something that we should put on our list of things that are preferences to do on occasion. But instead, Peter here over and over again is calling us to live lives of good works and good deeds. To, to, to live righteously and faithfully before the world around us. We're to live good, virtuous, upright lives before the watching world. And as they experience this zealous life of pursuing good, the world will not favor us because we're pushing against their idols, their loves, their joys. Instead, they will grow hostile toward us. This should not sway our resolve, however, to do good, even when it proves to be very difficult. Look with me, if you will, at the very last verse of chapter 4. Of 1 Peter. The very last verse of chapter 4 of 1 Peter says, Therefore, Peter is closing this chapter out here in this verse, verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is what we're called to. But we find here, Peter now turns to verse 14 in our passage, chapter 3, verse 14. He is turning now to say, 
that we can take this risk to be harmed. We can take this risk for suffering because this vigorous chasing after good is worth it. It's worth it, uh, Peter says. Listen to how Peter advocates for this in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, notice what he says, you will, you might be, you could possibly be, you would maybe, no. He says, you will be blessed. I want you to see here how Peter is not, I want to reiterate this, I've said this many times as we've worked through 1 Peter. Peter is not here saying, pursue suffering. He's not saying that. Instead, what Peter is saying here is pursue the good that God has given to you. Go after this, 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 uh, this life that Christ has given to you, hoping in him for righteousness sake. Pursue righteousness. Love good, that good that God has given to you, that's placed before you. Those things that he has blessed you with, that you're faithful to the callings and vocations that he's given to you. Lean into those things. Pursue those. A life that has been regenerated by the Spirit of God and given a new love new joys, a new hope, a living hope, lives devoted to then righteousness and doing good. This will be what we are desiring, what our hearts are for, what we want. Why? Because we, according to Psalm 34 that was quoted earlier in verse uh, 10 of chapter 3, we're those who love life and want to see good days, according to Psalm 34, 1 Peter 3, verse 10. That is, we are those who want to be blessed, And it says here in our passage that we will be blessed. Notice how Peter is not saying that those who pursue righteousness will avoid conflict, struggle, or hardship, or suffering. No, indeed what he's saying here likely is that when you pursue those things, these things will come. But don't pursue the hardship and the conflict and the suffering. No, pursue righteousness. Pursue the good life. Pursue those things that God has called you to. And in so doing, you'll find that in this broken, corrupt world, those who are around you will push, push against these things. We are, he is stating here then that even in the midst of these difficulties, that the reward that the Lord has for us is sweeter, better, and good for us. You know, in James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When? When are we to count it all joy? When you meet trials of various kinds. That's strange, isn't it? That's strange. Why Why would we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Because we know that the reward is better than the brokenness of this world. Matthew 5.10, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who are pursuing righteousness and are persecuted for it, blessed are those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their reward is greater than the reward of the kingdom of this earth or any kingdoms of this earth. He goes on, Jesus, and says, Blessed, in chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, you you will not feel blessed during that time. But Jesus says, no, no, you are blessed. He says, he goes on in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, and says, Rejoice and be glad when these things happen. That's completely contrary to anything in us. Why? Why would we rejoice and be glad? Jesus goes on and says this, For your reward, your reward is great in heaven. In heaven. You see, our hope is not fixed here. Our hope is not desiring the things of here. 
And then he goes on and finishes out, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying here is that this is exactly the aim that the prophets had. That's why they went through what they went through. Because their aim was not this world. It was the the world to come. The kingdom to come. But what could be so good? What could be so good that it causes all the loves of your heart to fade away? What could be so all-encompassing that harm and suffering and loss only causes your heart to be more thrilled instead of in despair? Did you know that there's a good out there that can do that? You're not convinced because your heart's constantly saying, no, 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 this new thing, this new This new situation, this new opportunity, this new vacation, this new this and that, all of these things. That's what we're after. That's what our hearts are going forward. We're pretty incessant, aren't we? We're constant. We're we're deliberately and always seeking this good. Is there one good out there that can satisfy our soul? Where all of these other things we can see is only temporary goods, only glimmers of what is truly good. Augustine, one of the church fathers, comments on this text. And in commenting on this text, he says this. If you love the good, you will suffer no loss. Because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. The Dutch reformer, Herman Bavink, tries to convince us of this good that we have when we have all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus, our Father, Christ Jesus, our Lord, and our Father in heaven. He says this, Herman Bavink says, According to Scripture, God is the sum total of all perfections. All virtues are present in Him in an absolute sense. In other words, uh, God is not just good. God, God does not just do good. He is good. God is not just blessing people, he is blessed. God is not just um, doing righteous acts, he is righteousness. And that's what is being spoken of here. All virtues are present in him in an absolute sense. That's why he is referred to, the Lord is referred to as the I am, right? Because he is these things. He is all that which is good. Now, Bavink continues and says, But that which is good in itself is also good for others. And God, as the perfect and blessed one, is the supreme good for his creatures. God, as the perfect and blessed one, is the supreme good for his creatures. Continue to listen. The supreme good all things strive for, the fountain of all good things, the good of every good, the one necessary and all sufficient good, the end of all goodness. He alone, listen, He alone, God, is the good to be enjoyed. While creatures, listen, while creatures are goods that are to be used. Did you get the distinction? God alone is the good to be enjoyed. While all creatures are goods that are to be used. And Bob Inc. continues and says, Especially Augustine frequently described God as the supreme good. In him alone is everything creatures seek and need. In him, 
is everything that creatures seek and need. He is the supreme good for all creatures. Though in varying degrees, depending on the extent to which each creature shares in the divine goodness and is able to enjoy him, listen, last sentence of Bavink, listen, it is he toward whom all creatures consciously or unconsciously, willingly or unwillingly strive. The object of every creature's desire. A creature finds no rest unless he's resting in God alone. One of the most profound and important truths that you can know is that God is good. One of the most profound and amazing truths that you can teach your children is God is good. Every sin that you sin, you're abandoning the goodness of God. You're saying, I want that sin, that thing, that, that creaturely thing. I want that instead of God who can give me better, to give me more, to give me more absolute goodness. This blessed life then, this blessed life that Peter is speaking of, when he says here at the end, he says, you will be blessed. This blessed life then is given to us even in our sufferings, how in the world can suffering and sorrow, and even he has, says here, harm and reviling, how can that be a blessing? Because when we are harmed, suffering, going through sorrow, the things of this world, the things that we foolishly claim to be good, are torn away from us. And in God's mercy, and in his goodness, he removes those things that our hearts so desperately treasure, thinking that we cannot possibly live without them. And he removes them so that we can see with better clarity that he ultimately is all the good that I was looking for in that other thing. But the Lord has it more absolutely. That thing only reflects it. And so the things of this world, though empty in their attempts to promise us all this good, we can only find good when we cast ourselves before Christ our Savior and acknowledge that through Christ as our fountain, He is the one who supplies for us all that is good in God. Oh, that the Spirit of God would open your eyes this morning. Oh, that you would take that truth and say, Lord, my heart does not understand that or feel that or experience that or live that. Would you, in your grace, convince me that you are my final and absolute good? That we might, when we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties and sorrows and harm and conflict, that we'll say, our God is good. He is good. There will be a day. There will be a day for each and every one of us when we will breathe our last. And he will finally, our God, will take away the last breath of our life. And on that last day, I pray that you will, with a, with a smile on your face, say, God is good. And I'm going to him. I'm going to see him. I'm going to look on his face, though dimly now. This is why Peter then... He builds all of this up in chapters, uh, chapter 3, verses 13, and the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 14. You see this? And then, only then, at the end of verse 14, does he, say, does he say, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You see what he's doing here? He's wanting to build the case that God and his blessedness is good. And only then, on that foundation then, he insists that we are to live our lives. What is there to fear? What can the world take from us? 
We have that which is good. Have no fear of them, it says at the end of verse 14. Nor be troubled. Our lives are not to be that of fear. Our lives are not to be that of being troubled all the time. We're to look to our Savior who is good. And in this passage, in this portion of the text, some translations actually break it out again because Peter here is again referring to an Old Testament reference. He's stirring the faith and hope of these saints to zealous good works, and he's bringing in God's word again, specifically from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. He's showing them that though they may suffer for doing good, though there may be harm for living out their lives in faithfulness, that Isaiah 8 shows us that the saints in the past have done this as well. And how has the prophet Isaiah responded to them? This morning we heard Alex read for us Isaiah chapter 8. Let me give you a little bit of context of that. Isaiah is a huge book. There's a lot of history going on in that book. But let me hone in on just this particular part of the history here at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. At this time, Israel, or excuse me, God's people, God's people, the Jews, the Hebrews, they were divided. They couldn't get along. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. They didn't like each other, right? They sat on opposite ends of the aisles. They wouldn't, they wouldn't speak to each other. They were on two ends, right? And they, and they refused to speak to each other. During this time period in history, Isaiah was prophesying to them. Isaiah was the prophet to both of those areas, both, both people, but primarily in Judah. And Isaiah is telling them of an imminent threat. And this imminent threat is Assyria, a massive nation to the north of both of them. So if Assyria is north of God's people, which nation will be taken first? Well, Israel, because they're the ones in the north, right? Judah's the one in the south. So Assyria's above them, and their desire is to basically conquer that entire area, and they're proving to do that. They're going through, and every, every place that Assyria goes, they wipe it out and destroy it. So Assyria basically says, we're coming down, and we're going to take you guys. Israel, which is this northern kingdom, says... Well, we're not strong enough to fight against Assyria by ourselves, so we're going to partner or align ourselves, get an alliance with another nation. Now, this other nation is called, this is confusing, but I apologize, this is what it's called. The other nation is called Syria, not Assyria. Assyria is the big country coming down. Syria is the nation that Israel says, we're going to partner with you. Syria says, okay, we'll partner with you because they're coming after us too, and we'll combine our forces and hopefully have some ability to come against Assyria, right? Then these two nations, Syria and Israel, look down to Judah and they say to Judah, will you join with us? And Judah's sitting there with his arms crossed. No way. You guys have treated us wrong. We're separate from you guys for reasons. You guys are doing all this stuff. We don't like you guys, right? And Israel's saying, well, you're, you're part of us. Join with, with us and Syria and we can fight against Assyria together. And there's a lot of bad, bad blood between them anyway, but they, they don't like each other. Now, here is an unpleasant but memorable illustration of this incident. I, I did this several years ago. I think it was, actually I looked, I think it was like 2013 that I preached this sermon out of Isaiah. And there's people who still mention this illustration today. And so it obviously is a memorable illustration that everybody can, can cling to. This is the scenario in an illustration form. Israel is a rat, all right? Syria is another rat, and they partner together. 
And these two rats are saying to Judah, which is a mouse, hey, Judah, why don't you join us? Now, what do rats do to mice? It doesn't usually bode real well for mice when rats are around, okay? So these two rats are saying, hey, Judah, as the mouse, why don't you join us? And Judah says this, no, we're not going to do that. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go to Assyria. This is what Judah does, the mouse. The mouse goes to the cat, which is Assyria, and says, would you align with us to destroy Israel and Syria? You see what happens? Here's the point. Judah is scared out of their mind. If you actually read history books, you'll find that Assyria was brutal. They're likely the only other nation that was as brutal during this time was the Babylonians. Assyria was brutal when they came through. They leveled everything, killing men, women, children, anything in their path. They were scared out of their minds. Isaiah is telling Judah, trust Jesus. Or excuse me, he's saying, trust the Lord. The Lord of hosts is what he's saying. The Lord of hosts, right? The Lord of hosts is the Lord of all the armies. That's, that's, the, that's the word for host. The Lord of all the armies. That's what Lord of hosts means. Trust the Lord of hosts, the one who is the Lord of all the armies. That's what, that's what Isaiah, the prophet, is saying to Judah. In other words, he's saying to Judah, and Judah's saying, you're crazy. There's a real army with real weapons that are coming to us. We need to, we need to do something other than just trust Jesus or the Lord. Um, I keep getting... so. Uh, I'm, I'm desperately New Testament. All right, so there's, there's something more that we got to do other than trust the Lord here. You've been there before, haven't you? There's been real, tangible, legitimate concerns and difficulties, and I've got to go to the world, the way the world would solve this, the way the world would understand this. We've, we've got to get this thing fixed. I mean, this is, okay, okay, I'll have faith. Yes, okay, whatever. I've got to go to this person, this doctor, this thing, this stuff. I've got to have these resources in order to fix this because my life is in danger. And it's way too difficult. Now, when Judah goes to Assyria, the mouse goes to the cat, right? What does, what did the two rats say? They say, specifically Israel, they said, you're, you're a conspirator. You, you, you could have you sided with us, which are, we're your people. But you decided to side with the enemy. How dare you, Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you decided to side with the enemy instead of with your people. Judas, Israel is saying, you should have sided with us. We're, we're the same people. But you didn't. You decided to go to the cat. Well, Isaiah's in the middle of all this. And he's that clanging gong that nobody wants to listen to, saying, why don't we trust the Lord? Right. Why don't we, hey, why don't we, why don't we do something crazy? Let's not trust Israel or Syria or Assyria. Let's trust the Lord. And all of them are saying, get this guy out of here. He's crazy. I mean, we're trusting the Lord, right? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. The Lord, for the Lord spoke thus to me, Isaiah, for his strong hand was upon me. Basically, Isaiah is saying, this isn't some preference of mine. This is the Lord pressing hard on me, wanting to tell you something, which is the king, of, um, the king in Judah. Isaiah is speaking to the king here in Judah. The Lord's hand is strong upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. In other words, Isaiah is saying, you are walking contrary to what God's calling you to do. Saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Right? In other words, he's saying, don't believe them when they're saying conspiracy. And here's, here's our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. And it goes on and says, and do not fear what they fear. Do you hear that? Nor be in dread, 
but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Did you hear that? That phrase is where, I, where Peter is pulling from. He's pulling from that phrase. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. That's what Isaiah is calling the king and Judah to do. Honor the Lord. Do not fear the things that they fear. And then he goes on and he says, let him, let the Lord be your fear. This is the question we have today. Are we fearing the Lord? Or are we saying we're trusting the Lord all along, placing more of our confidence in the things of this world, in the tangible ways that the world can please us and meet our needs and care for us? Let him, the Lord, be your fear. And let him be your dread. Let the Lord be the one that it's the worst thing possible that you displease the Lord. That's the main thing. And it goes on, he says, in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 8, and he will become a sanctuary. That's a great thing, isn't it? The Lord will become a sanctuary for those who fear him. But then it goes on and it says, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. What he's saying is, is that if you are not trusting the Lord, then the Lord's going to be against you. It's not just that the Lord's going to be okay with you because you're using your head and you're making sense and you're going and doing your own thing. No, no. He's saying, If you do not trust the Lord, then the Lord's going to be against you. A trap and a snare, Isaiah says, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony. In other words, listen to what the Lord is saying. Seal the teaching among my disciples. And now this is the hard part. And this is where we always have our, our, our difficulty when we're trusting the Lord. This is what Isaiah tells Judah. The king there is actually Ahaz. He tells Ahaz, he goes, this is what I want you to do while the Syrians are coming. This is what I want you to do. Wait on the Lord. That is insane. That is absolutely crazy. But that's where God puts us so many times. He says, I'm not going to deliver you today or tomorrow. I may not even deliver you in the next week or two weeks. I want you to wait on me and trust me. He says here, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. In other words, the Lord is, the Lord is not showing up. He's not showing himself to be strong right now. Do I, do I still trust him or not? It goes on, it says, Isaiah says, and I will hope in him alone. Earlier, Isaiah says, we will either stand by faith or we will not stand at all. That's true. We're we're going to, as God's people, and in our homes and in our lives, we're either going to stand by faith or we're not going to stand by at all. The Lord is pressing on Isaiah to fear only the Lord God as holy. And there's a tangible, real, significant Fear that that uh, Israel has, Isaiah Judah has, any worldly or earthly threat pales in comparison to the splendor and majesty of the Lord of Hosts, the Lord of all that is, the Lord of all the armies. All other things pale in comparison to that God, the Lord of Hosts, the one true living God. Isaiah is saying, don't trust Israel. Don't trust Syria. Don't trust Assyria. Trust the Lord. He will save you, but wait on Him. Wait on Him. 
in the midst of this evil and miserable world that's pressing hard against you, that are all kinds of pains and sorrows and difficulties, we're called to wait on him. This is what Peter is calling us. This is what Peter is calling the saints of his day too. He's calling us and the saints of his day to wait on the Lord and to trust him and him only. Don't worry about the, the, the formidable foes that are around you. Those who press hard, whether it be a boss that has every one of your financial needs in his hands, whether it be the, the politics around us, whether it be a particular law or government or the neighbors or all these things that can so easily press into you, the Lord has those things in his hands. And Peter's calling us to trust the same Lord, the same God, not a different one, and to place our hope in him and to wait on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to turn now to point two. And I want us to see in verse 15 something that Isaiah does and something that Peter does. Isaiah's quote actually runs out, runs from verse 14, have no fear of them nor be troubled, into verse 15. Do you see that there? But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That, that first line in verse 15 is part of Isaiah 8 as well. But notice what happens. And I want you to notice this because it's easy to overlook. Notice what I did, and notice that I'm actually following what Peter did. In Isaiah, it says, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, and that word Lord is actually Yahweh, it's capital L-O-R-D, Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Notice what it says here in First Peter. Peter, without any explanation, without any parentheses or anything, he is quoting Isaiah 8. And he says this, Have no fear of them, nor be in trouble, but in your hearts honor the Lord of hosts. No. He understands the Lord of hosts as having the same power, authority, and he is, he is God. He is Christ the Lord as holy. That is who we're to honor. That's who we, to, we are to revere. And so I want us to see here how Peter is explicitly calling Christ Jesus God himself. Clearly, as Peter brings this quote over from Isaiah chapter 8, Peter calls us to trust the same Lord of hosts, the same God of all the nations, the same God who has the same nature and essence, authority and character. Peter is calling us to trust this Lord of hosts who is Christ the Lord himself. We're to trust him today. But what exactly does it look like for us to honor Christ the Lord as holy what does it mean then, practically? What does it mean for us to honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy? Well, the first thing that it means, practically, is that we pray. It begins by prayer. And praying specifically what our Savior called us to pray. Do you remember that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. We begin by praying, asking the Lord that his name will be hallowed, that he will be holy, that he'll be revered and seen as distinct and set apart. He's the one who is the one and only, the one to be revered, the preeminent one in all of our lives. Here's the danger. Here's the danger for all of us. We do not make Christ holy. Instead, we place him alongside of all the other things we really think a lot of. In other words, we don't place Christ in the place that he deserves, and that is far and away eternally above all other things in our life. No, we place Christ in the really, really high spot along with all of the other things that we value very, very much. And in so doing, you're not, you're not honoring Christ as holy. 
You're honoring him alongside. You're pluralistic in that way. You're like the culture in that way. You're allowing all these things to be really important to me and I'm worshiping all of them. Christ does not get set aside any other deity or idol in our lives. He is preeminent. And that's what it means to honor Christ as holy. In our catechism, Orthodox Catechism, question 141, it asks the question, what, is, what does it mean when it speaks of the first petition? And it says the first petition, this is me answering question 144, the answer of question 144 in the Orthodox Catechism, says, hallowed be your name is the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. And then it explains it, and it says this, and when we hear this explained, then we'll understand better what it means to hallow the name of Christ. This is what it means. Grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know you and sanctify you and glorify you and praise you in all of your works, all that the Lord does, in which shines forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. In other words, explain Think through, understand that when the Lord is ordering and orchestrating our lives, it is Him that's doing it. You're not here this morning by accident. You're not here because you got out of bed, got in your car, drove here. You're here because of God's divine, the Lord of hosts, in all of creation, ordered every single thing so that you might be here this morning hearing this message. It goes on and says, the way we hallow His name or speak of hallowing, hallowed be his name, continues, and it says this, Grant us also that when we're praying, hallowed be your name. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, our words, our actions, that your name is never blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Do people praise the Lord because they are around you? Do people Turn to the Lord and say, wow, the Lord is amazing when they're around you. This is what it means to be hallowed, to hallow his name. Do you often thank the Lord for your surroundings? Now, I'm talking about not just the, the blissful times. When you're reading your Bible, you know, everybody thinks that this is how it works for me. I'm, I'm sitting by the window with the beam of light shining through, and a bird perches on the windowsill. And I'm, and I'm reading the scriptures and everything's quiet and hush. No, my, my, my times with the Lord are just like yours. I'm, I'm like grasping and crawling and trying my best to pay attention and to, and to focus. Sipping coffee, hoping that it'll, it'll get, me, get me going in the right direction, right? When our surroundings are insane, and a lot of times they are. When the things that are around us aren't what we want them to be. For us to say, Lord, this is your doing. And you've called me to be thankful. Thank you. Do you praise him for his goodness and grace when you rise up from sleep every morning? It is he that opened your eyes. It is he that brought you out of your rest. There will be a morning that that doesn't happen. Do you call upon him in prayer, asking him for wisdom and strength with your every thought, word, and deed? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? Try not pulling a thing out of your pocket and allowing that to consume your thoughts. Instead, Turn your heart to a flower or to the people around you or for the, for the blessings that the Lord has given to you. Thank the Lord for all of the things that he's provided for you and ask him to help you be more thankful and a person of more gratitude. I promise you that thing that you're looking at in your hand will likely make you more covet than be thankful. Is your life so framed by the Lord that nothing else has his place in every part of your life? This is what it means to honor 
Christ the Lord as holy. And know that when suffering or harm comes into your life, our Lord uses it to reveal if Christ actually has the appropriate place that he ought in our lives. You see, harm and suffering when then serves the Lord's glorious and good end. And that is, here it is, harm and suffering and sorrow and difficulty, they serve to measure our hearts to see whether we're honoring Christ and hoping in him or not. Is Christ the Lord honored as holy in your life? Now, the next section in verse 15 goes on and says, always being prepared to make a defense. We honor Christ the Lord as holy. We will naturally find ourselves regularly and ready to make a defense, to give an answer, to explain and give an explanation for that hope that we have in us because we're living out that hope regularly, daily. It's a constant part of our life. We can see the details given around this passage here in verse 15, and it really helps us understand what exactly is being spoken of here. When all of life is flying all to pieces and we are not, the world will likely ask, what in the world is causing you to be so calm and okay? It is because my hope is in Christ. So we see here some of the details that are being spoken of concerning this defense. First, it says this defense should be one that needs to be prepared. It needs to be prepared. It says here, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. The best way to prepare for this defense always is to be a part of, and you're not, this is not going to surprise you, is for you to be part of a local body of believers. And here Shane goes again, talking about the importance of the church. But if you're constantly with and around God's people, you're best prepared to be able to give the defense that you have because you're now being propped up and encouraged by the other saints that are around you. When you're discouraged, they can encourage you. But more than that, you're hearing the preached word every Lord's Day. And in that preached word, you're given the hope that is in you and it's reaffirmed in your hearts. And then you leave this place today and throughout the week you're going to be praying these things for one another in this congregation And you're going to be encouraging each other in the midst of this hardship. You may even call a brother or sister this week and say, listen, I'm I'm really struggling. I have this and this that's just fallen away. This this thing or this object or my car is broke or or that big deal that I was supposed to be getting at work is no longer there. And now financially I'm I'm strapped. What's going on? And and it will allow other brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to speak into your life and say, "Let's, let's root and anchor our heart in the hope that is Christ. For he's the one. That is good. So one of the best things we can do as a defense here, this defense needs to be prepared. One of the best things we can do is constantly be and regularly be in the midst of a body of believers that's receiving the preached word and and spreading and encouraging that hope of Christ in the midst of one another, in the midst of our conflict. Second, this defense not only needs to be prepared, but it also needs to be specific. This defense needs to be specific. It says, for a reason... For the hope that is in you. Do you see that there? This text has often been used as a proof text for a particular discipline called apologetics. Making a rational defense for the faith. So many of you would love for me to go off on all kinds of tangents right now and do all kinds of other things. But I'm sticking with the text. Here what we find is that Peter is not calling everybody to be an apologist. To be well known. To be able to go to the college campus and defend the faith. Rationally. No, 
This is not the formal discipline that he's calling us to here. But instead, he's calling all believers to the ability to be able to speak of the hope that is within us. Very specifically, to talk about what God has done through us. Now, this is not just sharing my testimony. That's not what it's about. Because your testimony and another person's testimony and another person's testimony, all of those are just wonderful stories. What's, the hope that's in us isn't something that's necessarily that is about us. The hope that's in us is something that's about what God has done in Christ. So this is talking primarily about this hope that is in us is the basic tenets of the gospel. We're to all to be able to defend the basic tenets of the gospel. Now, it's easy for us to then think that the best way to do this is to go out and read some of the latest books on apologetics, to find some other books on theology or other things and be able to read those and be, 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 able, to, be able to defend ourselves in those ways. This is not, I think, what Peter's talking about here. I think one of the simplest and best ways for us to get a grasp and to be able to defend the basic tenets of the gospel as God's people in this church is for us to regularly read, think, and talk through the catechisms that the church has given to us. Throughout the, throughout the centuries, catechisms have been a faithful way of articulating the basics of the faith. There has been many, 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 many times, usually almost every week, sometimes several times a week, when somebody calls me and says, I have a question for you. And they ask the question, and then I point them to one of the answers or questions um, from the catechism. Because these deal with all of the basics of the faith, the basic tenets of the faith. Regularly working through our worship journal, where we are going through now questions 57 through 60 of our worship journal, reading those, understanding those, thinking through those, being familiar with our two different catechisms that we particularly use, that's the Baptist catechism and an Orthodox catechism, is one of the best ways for us to be able to defend the hope that is in us, defend the basic tenets of the gospel by familiarizing ourselves in that and shaping our lives accordingly. Thirdly, not only are we to be prepared and specific, but our passage here says, thirdly, that this defense needs to be humble. Humble. Notice there at the end it says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I prefer, those of you who are sitting there with the New American Standard uh, translation in your lap, I prefer that translation over uh, the ESV at this point. Here, the, NS, the New American Standard says gentleness and reverence. And the reason is because this word for respect in our ESVs and the word for reverence in the New American Standard is actually the word for fear. And if you remember several weeks ago when I dealt with that particular word for fear in the original, it spoke of the fact, and we can see, that in Peter, Peter only uses the word for fear as fearing God. Fearing God. He doesn't use it anywhere to fear a man, but only to fear God. In fact, he explicitly says that. Fear only God earlier in 1 Peter. And so with that said, this idea for respect kind of gets the idea that we're supposed to be gentle and respect this other person. And, and that, that is true. We're not supposed to be harsh and, and unruly. But the idea here is that when we're, we're, when we're making our defense, we're doing it gently and carefully and with reverence as if we're before the very eyes of God. So my point here is this, is that when we're sharing our faith, it's not so much that we're concerned about how that other person responds or how they react to how we're defending the faith. What really matters is that we are defending the faith before our God. And ultimately and finally, we're desiring to reverence and fear him and him alone and that's what seems to be spoken of here so the point is not merely to be nice or respectful to others though that can be included obviously as we honor the lord the point is not to be aware of how the other person um, is receiving this or how they're reacting but instead to be humble before the almighty god 
and know that with that you can be confident and have boldness and yet do this defense with gentleness. John Calvin says the only truly bold man is the one who's standing before God. When we defend the faith to give an answer, we must be careful not to reflect the world in this way or to defend our faith becoming harsh or critical. We are to be careful not to be aggravated and fearful that if we don't say the right thing or do the right thing, then that person's not going to believe or they're going to go off on a tangent and go somewhere else or they're going to be able to say something that's going to, that's going to get it, that's going to get me and, and defeat my argument. No, we don't have to worry about that because when we are gentle and reverent before the Lord, we can speak with confidence and courage, with gentleness and reverence, knowing that it is Christ and His Spirit that must do the convincing. Are you continuing to live your life this morning? Are you continuing to live your life defending yourself, defending your own kingdom, desiring to protect what is yours and the life that you have chosen for yourself? Opposing all other kingdoms, seeking to have your own kingdom and insist that everybody around you lives according to your kingdom? Is that where you are this morning as you're sitting here? This kingdom of your own making, you know if you look deep in your heart, you know it has failed you over and over again. It will never succeed. I want you to think this morning as we consider the gospel. Look with me, if you will, in the worship journal. Page 2 and 3 of the worship journal. I want you to notice there the very framework of our worship service. The very framework of our worship service is in four sections. Glory to God, top of page 2. Guilt of man, top of page three, grace in Christ, and then gratitude from saints. Do you understand that these four, these four categories actually is walking through the very gospel message? Let me explain. Glory. It is because you or no one else was, it was because none of us were created for our own kingdom, living for ourselves but we were created instead by our maker to bring glory and honor to him. It is his glory that is reflected in all of creation and is only his glory that we're to be living for. And yet, guilt, glory, guilt. And yet in guilt, every person has refused to glorify God and instead has rebelled against him. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. By living for our own glory, desires and ambitions, we know this is sin. And all of us, though we suppress it or not, we know that guilt deep in our own hearts because it exists because we are in violation of the creator and maker of our own. Thirdly, grace. Grace can be found only in Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, came and dwelled among us sinners 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience, was accused, condemned, and executed wrongly on a Roman cross, Peter tells us earlier in chapter 2 what happened on that cross. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, On that cross he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. But did he really do that? Is that what happened when he died on that cross? Or was he just like those other two thieves that were hanging on either side of him that died that day? How do we know that what Jesus said he was going to do when he went to the cross, he actually did. Well, we know because he, unlike anyone else, rose three days later from the dead, revealing himself to, be, to many witnesses of his day and then ascending to heaven, the right hand of the Father, and sits now on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will judge again one day 
the quick, and the dead. Grace. Gratitude. Gratitude. One of the most significant ways that we can, with this message, show gratitude is to do this. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and trust in Christ. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, if we believe on him, will give us forgiveness of our sin. Point number three, verse 16. Look with me, if you will, as we wrap up together. Verse 16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. When under the pressure of hardship and struggling because of our faith, we can often resort to excuse our sin. Well, this is hard. This is difficult. I'm trying to be faithful, but there's all these hardships and difficulties to this. And so I'm not going to be faithful. I'm going to choose an easier route or a preferred route. Later on, I'll be more faithful because I'll have a better opportunity to be faithful later. We can easily begin rationalizing this way. But when we become frustrated or angry or when things become difficult, just when we're trying to be faithful, we need to understand we are to respond to harm and hardship, sorrow and suffering, the pushing back by the world, when we zealously are seeking to pursue good, the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to these things. We are called to live truly. We're called to live sincerely before our God. We're not to apologize or make excuses for sin, even when hostility or difficulties come our way. When the world slanders us or reviles us or speaks all kinds of evil against us, all of those things aren't things I'm just making up. These are things that are in our Bible. When these things happen, we are to so live with a good conscience before the Lord that those who speak against us will be silenced, not because we're so smart that we can defend our faith and we can shut them down when they speak of us, but instead the Lord himself will vindicate us and they, the Lord will put them to shame because of our sincere standing before our Lord who is good. Now, our passage here says that we're to have a good conscience. What on earth? A good conscience. So many of you are here this morning and you says, my conscience does nothing but accuse me. I am constantly in bondage to my conscience. It is constantly making me turn and toil. There's others here this morning who have such a seared conscience that you've ignored it for so many years. There is nothing that is getting through. In fact, you're waiting for the time to be done right now because the Spirit of God is not on you and your conscience is so desperately seared. But for those who are in Christ this morning, for those who are in Christ this morning, I want to encourage you that we must, as God's people, and this is what we're to encourage each other with, we must keep our conscience coming back to the gospel. Our feelings, our experiences, our difficulties, our conversations, our surroundings will often betray us. We must often and regularly bring our conscience back to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and reside there. And this is why I want us to do this. Probably, probably my second favorite question and answer in the Orthodox Catechism is in our worship journal this morning. Turn with me to page 7. I'm hoping to not only use the catechisms this morning and the worship journal, but also help you see how you can use it throughout the week and even in your own life regularly. Question 59 on page 7 of the worship journal is my second favorite question and answer in the Orthodox Catechism. 
when our conscience flays us, when we're constantly bound by all of the difficulties and struggles and hardships that are in our lives, we know our own sin. And we say, there's no way the Lord's going to forgive me again. Look at question 59. Question 59 asks, how are you righteous before God? Now, if you're in Christ, as it says in question 59, 58, you're righteous before God. Righteous. We, we don't even know exactly what that means. It's just it's blameless, true, righteous. The Lord God loves Christ loves righteousness, and he is righteous. How are you righteous before God if you're in Christ? Listen, answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Spend time reading that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and your soul might begin believing it. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. But, 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 what about, listen, Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all, not some, all God's commandments, have never kept any of them. Do you hear this? This man knows me and you. Have never kept any of them and am still inclined to do all evil. Still inclined to do all evil, even as one who's in Christ. Do you see that phrase there? Yet God, underline that, yet God, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. Astonishing. And as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. Man, that's, there's no way that can be true. How can I have that? How can I stand before God righteous? How can that happen? If only, last, last sentence, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. You see what we need to do? We need to regularly, often, bring our flayed consciences that are bound by the sin that all of us brought here with us this morning. And we're to come back, not to, well, but, but I did this good thing, and I did that good thing, and I'm trying really hard, and I've got really hard life, and there's a lot of things that are going on, and, and I'm doing my best, but it's under really hard circumstances. Ditch all of that and say, it's because of Christ that I stand before my God righteous. That is the gospel. And that will be the only way that we can do this verse this being, that we're being called to. Have a good conscience. So that when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Not because we're so perfect. But because Christ is defending us. He's the one that's, that's on our side defending us. Hearing us when we pray. And defending us when we call upon his name. What a blessed Conscience that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. And we'll close. Paul says to Peter, that pastor in Ephesus, he says, Indeed, all, and he's not making a suggestion or 
using some little quote. He's, he's saying this is a truth. Paul saying to Peter or to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy, he says, Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is there any, is there any um or question mark there? No. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So there we are. This is what it means when we are baptized and brought into a body of believers. This is what it means to live in Christ. And when we, and when we do, when we face harm, hardship, sorrow, struggle, loss, suffering, you're going to ask, like everybody else throughout the centuries have asked, you're going to ask, is it worth it? Is there a heaven? Am I righteous before Christ, before God? Is, there, is, there, is His blood washed me so that I might be cleansed and be righteous before Him? To this concern, Peter leaves us with a clear declaration that we must fix in our souls when we're pressed at every side, when we're slandered and reviled for the good behavior that God has given, that God has called us to, when, we're deni- when um, we have to den- deny our own desires and our own wants and live as Christ has called us to. Even though we may say to ourselves, I don't want to do this. I don't desire to pursue this. I don't want to continue. How can we continue? This is how we can continue. Verse 17. For it is better. It is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will. Than for doing evil. This verse gives us confidence. That. When we suffer, it is never by chance, but by our Father's strong, kind, and wise hand. Did you hear that? Whatever you may be going through, hardship, sorrow, struggle, difficulty, it is not because the Lord is trying to pound you. It is only by the Father's strong and kind and wise hand. Because the Father will never appoint more for you than what he is willing to carry you through. Did you hear that? The Father will never appoint more for you than he is willing to carry you through. Not more than what you can handle. He always gives us more than we can handle. That's why we pray. If he never gave us more than what we can handle, we'd never pray. But we pray because he's always given us more than what we can handle. But he's never going to give us more than what he can carry us through. He will never appoint anything into our lives that is merely for our harm because he's good. And he will always point whatever is necessary for our lives so that we can be brought all the way home. It's not none of us by mistake. His way is better. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for each of us? Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul says, For I am 
I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Let us pray.